Welcome back to the Ways to Be podcast. Yeah, so glad you guys are here. Uh, today, we are talking with Sue Rankin-White. She is amazing. She's awesome. She has a great story to share, and I'm grateful that she's willing to do it. This podcast episode is called Changing the System with Sue Rankin-White. Uh, I think her story is a gift for all of us. I hope there's something we can each glean from it for the work we're doing in the world and the work we need to be doing. And so take a listen. Uh, hope it inspires you to go and do what you're being called to do. Grace and peace. Okay. So this is Sue Rankin-White. And um, I don't know. She's fun. She's great. She's going to share a little bit of <laughs> her, her wisdom and insight and experience of life. And um, I don't know. Why don't we just start with uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, some of your life experience growing up. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I'm a native North Carolinian and uh, grew up in a small uh, mill town that probably many people have already, already know about, may have visited. It's McCaddenville, North Carolina, which is called Christmastown, USA. Yeah. Uh, grew up there. Um, and I grew up there. Uh, uh, I, I grew up there during the uh, polio epidemic in North Carolina, uh, which was uh, which was um, uh, impacted the state uh, dramatically. Uh, there were thousands of people who contracted the virus during the during that time in the 40s, and in the late 40s, and many people died. So uh, it was a time not unlike right now where people were afraid, af afraid of, of uh, contracting the virus. And uh, of course, uh, I contracted the virus when I was nine months old. So I didn't have to worry about it at nine months old. I just went with the flow and I did contract yeah. the virus and consequently, um, left me uh, partially uh, paralyzed uh, and growing up with uh, uh, long leg braces and crutches and uh, um, and I went you know went through uh, uh, went through my my youth in that uh, in that situation but uh, so many people were afraid <clears throat> their kids were going to get the were going to get the virus. I remember very vividly uh, when I was in second grade. Uh, finally, the uh, the vaccine, the stock vaccine, became available, and I remember uh, the public health nurse came to our school, and she put me the first in line to get the to get the vaccine. And I think back on that time, I, it, it's just very, very poignant in my mind. But I think back about it, and I think that she must have put me in the front of the line uh, to tell a, sort of a signal to the other kids to say, look, kids, um, if you don't get this vaccine, you may end up in this situation. Of course, I you know, wasn't thinking about it at the time. I mean, being in the second grade, I just bravely went up and, and got the shot and went on about my, uh, went on my way as the other kids uh, got their shots. Uh, but that's kind of a, you know, a, a little 
snapshot there of what the first years were like. Yeah. Wow. And I didn't even, yeah, that must be such a um, familiar setting for what we're going through now for people who lived through that experience, right? It was. I, I heard stories of people um, who were who ha- were wealthy and of means who sent their families out of state to live with relatives in other states because the virus the virus was so prevalent in in North Carolina in the in the area particularly the area where uh, where we lived. Wow, wow, man! And so that so that put you what how would you label yourself after like growing up were you always in when did you get in a wheelchair were you always in a wheelchair um well i wasn't in a wheelchair until much later on i i I walked with as i said with braces and crutches which was a very laborious uh way of mobility at the time particularly uh when you figure at this time this was in the uh this was in the mid 50s and uh, uh, you have to look at the environment in the mid-50s. There were lots of steps, lots of barriers, and uh, not, you know, not just, a barri- not just the physical barriers, but the, um, uh, the, the barriers, the attitudinal barriers at the time. Uh, there was the fear, the fear among other kids that, you know, maybe they're going to be like me or, and, and it, it made me feel, uh, it made me have feelings that, that they didn't want to be a, around me at the time. But I, I didn't have any role models growing up, no role models of uh, uh, art to look, to look to, of people with disabilities who were adults that I could model. Um, and living in this, uh, uh, living in, uh, uh, a small textile town where uh, up to, to, to the point where I was, very few families, parents of, 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 of my, my uh, peers, very few had gone to college. Most had, most, uh, as my father was in the war, in World War II, my mom had to drop out of school to go to work to help support the family. And while he was uh, overseas. I was born, in fact, while he was uh, uh, in the war, and so most of them were un- uh, most of uh, the people in the village were uneducated with any formal education. So again, I had no uh, role models to look to, and uh, I guess there's a reason they call um, people who had polio. I, I think there's a reason they call us polio survivors. Uh, because uh, we were hell-bent on surviving. Um, there mm. were four, four other people in my small class who also had contracted the virus. Wow. And so we grew up just sort of forging the way without having those role models. But, but I knew uh, early on, I knew that my key to getting out of that village uh, was education. Hmm. Um, I, I just, uh, uh, I knew that and I didn't know what, what to do because again, without, there were no women role models 
uh, around that were uh, that had uh, like professional uh, jobs. And the only role models that I knew at the time were my school teachers. So I figured, well, uh, you know, I'll be a school teacher. And that's kind of the, the, uh, the path that I sought uh, mainly because I just didn't know any other way to go. And so I did um, get into college. I um, forged my way through college with uh, 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 all the physical barriers around. I have to say, I, I went to Pfeiffer College, and I have to say that that was a small college, and and the um, the students there at the time uh, uh, were were very accepting of me. I didn't mm -hmm. feel. I didn't feel left out. I, I, I always felt that they made uh, ways for me to, to be involved in all of the activities that they did. So I, I, was, I was just very fortunate. I was very fortunate that um, despite um, my, uh, my family being poor, that they had, they had um, managed to uh, get me into school and that was some scholarship money I was able to get in and I was able to graduate and I was a teacher <laughs> in Charlotte Mecklenburg schools. I, I, remember, uh, I remember interviewing for my job uh, as a school teacher with Charlotte Mack uh, in, the, uh, in junior high school. I was an English major, so I was gonna be teaching language arts and social studies and, and uh, I remember, uh, you know, some of the questions that they asked me made me think that they had some reservations about, well, you know, how I was going to, to manage a, uh, uh, a classroom. But hmm. uh, nevertheless, um, I, did, I did get a job um, and uh, I managed... Um, I think I managed just fine and that, I, you know, I taught school um, uh, for, for six years. Uh, I, I managed to get my own apartment. My parents, through all of this, were all, always just shaking their head. What does Susie want to do now? <laughs> At first it was going away to school and then it was living, uh, living in, my, in an apartment by myself in Charlotte uh, in the 60s yeah. uh, they were they were afraid for me they were afraid for for my safety uh, but so, again I I feel like I was you know forging ahead I knew I had to do these things to be able to survive and yeah. I drove a car uh, I got a car and uh, um, had hand controls installed on the car and and I um well can I ask what um I mean you say forging ahead but what are some of the specific difficulties you had to navigate I mean you mentioned something like steps but what like and you mentioned some of um how people looked at you or perceived that, right? But what were some other, what was this grit you had to have to be able to get through? What were, what were you trying to get through? Well, 
I was trying to um, I was trying to get through, and I was trying to um, think about ways that things could be easier in in the environment. Do we, you know, do we have to? Uh, do we have to? Um, do we have to have this route? Do we have to have these steps? Do we have to have uh, uh, this curb that you have to get up over to get into this building? And around this time, um, this was in uh, early, by this time, this is early 70s. And, uh, you know, people were protesting the Vietnam War and Vietnam veterans were coming home. And I remember the guy who lived across the hall from me in my apartment building was a Vietnam vet. He was in a wheelchair, uh, paralyzed from, uh, uh, from the war. And so, um, you know, we became friends. So it was right across the hallway. And, and you know, we had to, uh, uh, we had to get in that apartment building and it wasn't easy. It was easier mm -hmm. for me than it was for him. But needless to say, we uh, we we both tried to uh, to see if there were some other ways to do things better. And around this time, this was this was 70s. This was like um, this was like early mid 70s and early to mid 70s. And around this time. Um, uh, people with disabilities were getting, besides myself, all over the country, there was this general unrest because these Vietnam vets were coming home, missing arms, missing legs, but mainly they were missing the dignity that was owed to them, that they deserved. They fought for our country, and yet they came home and, and they were unemployed. Uh, they couldn't get out of their apartments. They couldn't get across the curb. They couldn't get on public transportation. They couldn't get jobs. They were pitied by society. So people with disabilities were, you know, there was an uprising. It, you know, the sort of um, everyone was getting tired of it and sort of like, what, what can we do? So we began to, uh, we began to protest there were uh, dis there were marches of, of of people with disabilities all over the country, and one thing that we were marching for in those in the in the uh, in the early seventies was um, was to consider disability discrimination because at that point it was not considered discrimination. People could keep us out of any building they wanted to. There was no. There were no rules, and so same with jobs, jobs, um, education. Mm. Uh, there was a, a young woman with cerebral palsy who went to uh, the movie, uh, a movie theater, and uh, and and she they didn't let her in because she had cerebral palsy. Really, and her mother her mother called the the theater um, uh, manager and said, you know, it's, it seems like. It sounds like discrimination, and there, his response was, "I don't care what it sounds like." Hmm. And so that was the kind of thing that we were dealing with as a as a, a a whole all over the all over the country. And so there were there were marches and there were sit-ins 
And this one thing that we're trying to achieve, one of the first things we're working toward was to, to, to get disability considered discrimination. And so there was a fight with health, uh, education and welfare. Uh, at the time that was, that was the name of the Department of Education before it, it, it became the Department of Education. It was yeah. health, education, welfare. And so there were marches all over the country and sit-ins in the lobbies of the buildings where HEW offices were, hmm. were housed to try to fight for, uh, for that to come about in, in law. That was, that was the early fight for Section 504 in the Rehabilitation Act. One of the most well-known uh, was the sit-in in San Francisco that lasted 28 days of, of people with disabilities camped out. It was an amazing sit-in. Uh, there was support from the outside, uh, people bringing in food uh, to help them. Uh, the, the, uh, the individuals survive during that 28 days, but um, they slept on the floor. Uh, they, of course, they, uh, they didn't have any personal assistance to help them. It was, it was an amazing sit-in, but it yeah. was because of that sit-in and the people, the, the, lead, the organizers of that sit-in who were people with disabilities themselves. Um, and around that time in 1973, uh, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act was finally passed. And so, what is that? What is Section 504? That is the um, the provision in the law which uh, bans discrimination on the basis of disability, uh, similar to uh, uh, what um, African Americans uh, experienced with race uh, and with women with sex. Uh, discrimination and now disability so and that's uh, interesting that it, you kind of have these things back to back right I mean yeah. what, what you this was in the 70s right the civil rights movement yeah. was in 68 yeah yeah, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. it was so we're seeing like a pattern of and the same kind of right protesting sit-ins yeah. yeah um in fact we uh we um we we partnered with the African-American community. Of course, you know, not needless to say, lots of people with disabilities at that time were, were African-American, but we tried to, to partner with the, with the uh, civil rights activist uh, during that time. I, I remember uh, marching in the streets in Atlanta uh, we, we, I was, uh, I was in the march with many of my friends at that time, and we marched to the Martin Luther King Memorial, uh, which was symbolic of not just the rights of, uh, of people of color, but, it, you know, we claimed that as, as part of the uh, disenfranchisement that we had experienced as, as, as people with disabilities. Yeah. Well, so you may not have an answer for this, but why does something have to be in law for people to not di discriminate? Why could, you know, why is that so important? You know, why, why could it not just be, oh yeah, we should pay attention to people who maybe can't get upstairs easily or 
you know, this curb, maybe it shouldn't be as high, or maybe there should be a ramp on it, or what is that? Yeah, it sounds like a reasonable uh, premise, but, you know, things just don't happen that way. And especially when you look at, um, uh, when, when you look at money, um, and um, uh, money is certainly, uh, money was certainly a factor in uh, changing people's mind here, because if you look at uh, what we wanted to achieve. We wanted to achieve full access and full participation in our communities. Uh, because up to this time, so many people with disabilities had been uh, shut away, uh, warehoused in institutions where people didn't have to see us, so they didn't have to think about us. Mm. Well, see, we're beginning to get out now, and so it was like they had to look at us, they had to deal with us, and it was becoming a little bit harder to uh, avoid dealing with the issue. Hmm. Nonetheless, uh, when you think about uh, uh, the, let's just say, uh, the local, local restaurant that many people would want to go to that had steps to get in, uh, say it's a mom and pop restaurant, and the owner is saying, uh, how much money is it going to cost me to, uh, to, put in, uh, uh, to put in a ramp or to put in a, um, uh, a lift, uh, an automatic lift to, to let people get in? So it became a matter of, uh, it was a matter of, it was a matter of, uh, uh, of money. And... Hmm. businesses, small businesses and large businesses, the larger the business, the larger the stake. And um, people didn't want to put out the money. So it was going to be uh, the only way to bring about this change was to, 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 have, to have a law which said you have to do this. It's unfortunate. But even, uh, you know, even with the law, uh, people came uh, kicking and screaming into, um, into um, compliance, so to speak, which was, mm. you know, getting things the way, uh, the way they should. And it, yeah. it created, uh, we, we still had to do a lot of demonstrating and a lot of protesting in a, in a lot of different places. I remember in particular, the um, um, the effort to to get public transit uh, buses uh, when people with color uh, were sitting in the back of the bus and we couldn't even get on the bus and so I had a lot of friends um, who chained themselves to buses um, in many big cities and uh, to make the point that. Uh, we couldn't get on the bus hmm. and many many of them were arrested and the stories that uh, that they tell I wasn't one of those because um, uh, for one thing during this my own job evolution um, I went from teaching school uh, which was the only, as I said the only thing I knew there initially 
I went on to uh, to work in uh, in in the field of disability for um, for the government. Um, for uh, first of all, I was a, uh, worked in as a uh, in a in a federal grant that received grant funds, uh, and this was in the late seventies, and this was part of uh, uh, an effort from the uh, uh, disability community. This was a growth point of. Uh, uh, the disability community in the late 70s, we formed the uh, independent living movement, which was a movement of people with disabilities for people with disabilities. Hmm. Uh, we created uh, centers. Well, you said there was a motto or something. There was a motto. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the motto uh, of the disability community at that time that that came about was nothing about us without us. Yeah, and you know it was by God. Uh, you know we want to we we don't we want a seat at the table, and we want a voice at the table. Not that's not all we want. No. We want decision makers with disabilities at the table. Yeah. and so these centers for representation. Yeah, these centers for independent living grew up all over the country. And they were um, staffed by people with disabilities, and they were governed. They were nonprofits uh, that received federal funds. So I worked in one of the first ten centers for independent living that happened to be in Charlotte, uh, and I worked there. Um, we were, uh, and and part of uh, what we were mandated to do was to uh, work for systems change. Um, uh, help people learn how to advocate for systems change <clears throat> and how to be peer role models. So as a person with a disability, you know, I, I could work with other people with disabilities and say, look, you know, it wasn't easy, but I got an education. And, and so we helped each other be role models as we we went through this process. And that this was is, that piece. That was that piece you were talking about when you were a kid. I had no role model. And yeah, I remember exactly. that. So I want a role model. And yeah. this, we just want to be able to be a part of the community. We're being excluded yeah. from being part of the community. How do we help people do that? And yeah, just it's so such basic stuff that people yeah. just right over their heads right um right. we want to be included we want representation yeah. Yeah. and these centers were like these were agents of change i mean we were a thorn in everybody's <laughs> side because we were at every meeting demanding uh access um to the meeting to the services to uh you know we were we were an extremely uh uh, demanding group, but it was the only way uh, to bring about change. And you know, when you're talking about systems change, um, um, this is this is now late seventies. Okay, we got five hundred four passed in nineteen seventy three. Look how long it took to get all the way up to Americans with Disabilities Act in nineteen ninety. So systems change is really you know, you're in it for the long game. You're talking about changing systems that are ingrained in the way they do things. 
local government, state government, federal government, um, employers, and most of all, the, the attitudes of all of the American people. Attitudes um, that devalued uh, people with disabilities. The, the, the attitude was there was a low expectation of what we could do. So it was like, you know, what do you, you know, why do we need to spend this money to let you in this building when you're really not worth it? So you're only like part of a person. You're not That's a full right. person. Yeah. That's right. You're not. And so the expectation was you're not really going to be a wage earner. You're not really going to be a tax paying citizen. Mm. Uh, you know, that was, that was, that was. So why that, should we do this for you? Why should we do this uh, for you? Oh, because value for a human is on what they produce. Right. Versus. Exactly. Just, and how much, how much taxes are you going to be paying? Or are you going to be a burden on the tax system? Will there be higher taxes because we have to um, raise the taxes to get the money to give you these fundamental things that you're demanding? So, you know, that was... Um, so you can participate fully in the life of the community. Right. So you see a sort of a... a, a chasing your tail kind of uh kind of uh the way it, the way it was going and so, so you think if if money was not a problem the ever the government or the systems or the structures would be like sure no problem well i think you know i think the money um uh, you can't you, you can't buy your way into um into uh changing people's attitudes though. It's like, I couldn't give you enough money to change your attitude that, um, that, you know, this is, this is the right thing to do. You're doing it because it's a good thing to do. It's an altruistic thing. It's going to allow uh, a, a, a class of people, an entire class, because by this time, what 504 had done was it made us a class of people. Mm. Uh, it made us an actual minority group. Okay. Yeah. Up to, see, uh, up to this point, disability was more of a uh, was a diagnosis. So we looked at all polio diagnosis or all paraplegics. You know, we we dealt with the diagnosis. We didn't deal with the class of people that just had these di the, the disabilities. So a real, a real fundamental, uh, a fundamental uh, difference there in the, uh, in the paradigm. If you're looking at a medical model of treating this diagnosis versus a, uh, a humanistic model of uh, making societal change to improve society for uh, a class of individuals. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting because it makes uh, a very clear distinction of, oh, yeah, 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 you can get this stuff put into law or you can give people the money to build a ramp or do whatever they have to do, but that doesn't change how they feel or how they look at you or how they uh, determine your value. Uh, yes. 
And so even with the change of the system, it may take even longer for a change of the spirits. Absolutely. Absolutely. To, for, uh, for the person with the disability to be in a group of individuals and be looked upon with the same level of respect and, and dignity as any person in that group. It, it, it was about, it was about really fundamental things of, uh, of, of dignity and, and respect. That's what, that's what we wanted. Yeah. And having access is just a basic, fundamental, dignity yeah. value thing. Yeah, I mean, that's just uh, that's just a way to to get through the door. But it's not like what happens on the when you get on the other side of the door. You know, what's what's there for what's there for me, and what's there for this this group of my friends. Mm, yeah. Gosh. And so this is like an ongoing battle. <laughs> I mean, is battle is probably the right word, right? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. It, it, yeah. Because it was a, it was a, uh, a fight for rights, uh, rights that we felt were owed to us. Hmm. And so um, uh, we have to keep, I have to keep bringing up Section 504 because the regulations for 504 were the, uh, the foundation for what um, what became the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act, which uh, which uh, w we were seeking uh, for the the provisions of 504 to be expanded because they were fairly uh, that's fairly limited, and we're looking for we're looking for um, access to education, access to employment, where you couldn't discriminate, you couldn't uh, interview me for a job and not hire me because of my disability because you thought I couldn't do something because of my disability. So we were looking for broader. Uh, broader rights, uh, and, and that's what the fight for the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, was, was about: ex expanding, um, expanding our rights. Hmm. So, what comes first, or how do they pair together these rights and having helping people see things in a new way? Right. Well, um, I I think what um, um, what what it was was the was per perseverance of people with disabilities it was perseverance um it was um people with disabilities continuing to come out and tell our stories because they were they're powerful stories um and uh they were from thousands and thousands of people. The Americans with Disabilities Act uh, can't be credited to one person, uh, but to the thousands of people in, in all of the communities across the United States, uh, there was uh, people with disabilities were becoming empowered these centers for independent living showed people what they could do and showed the role models that could help organize and could help lead them and teach them and did do that. And 
Um, it was the it was those stories that um, there were there were of course many hearings across the country uh, during this time of the thousands of people that came forward and, and told their stories of uh, of the Vietnam vets who came forward and testified about about coming home and about uh, uh, the humiliation that they experienced and about the pity and about the uh, not being able to get about. I mean, you remember the the movies of that era very very poignantly uh, told those stories. Uh, uh, people that couldn't uh, maybe had a wheelchair, but what good is a wheelchair if if, if you can't get up a flight of steps? Or what good is a wheelchair if you can't get over the curb or if, if you can't get on the bus? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can't go to school. You, you don't have a way to get there. Not everyone could get a car that had hand controls. Um, you couldn't the power get, was in these stories. The power was in these stories. And, and the and, protests were a visual of these stories, I imagine. They were a, a, a visual that, that made the news, made headlines in the news, in the newspapers, uh, the nightly news. Um, What's this one about? You mentioned the other day a, a crawl. Well, one of the most uh, uh, poignant of these um, protests was the Capitol crawl uh, that occurred on March twelfth, nineteen ninety, and this was uh, uh, preliminary to the the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, but. Uh, a thousand people converged on Washington, a thousand people with disabilities and their families and their advocates converged on the, on the Capitol. Uh, it was the march to the Capitol. When they got to the Capitol, um, it wasn't enough to have this sea of people with disabilities marching, but What happened when they got to the Capitol steps was they began to abandon their wheelchairs and they laid down their crutches and their walkers. And they began to ascend the 83 stone steps of the Capitol. Mm. And they crawled up those steps and there was an eight-year-old girl there with cerebral palsy. And she said, it might take me all day to get up these steps, but I'll get there. Whew. And this, hmm. this vision of, of all of these people climbing up the steps of the Capitol, um, lived in people's minds and uh, prompted um, the, final, the final hearings uh, for the Americans with Disabilities Act. And we were also fortunate to have some, um, some political um, 
representation that helped move move the act to its final stages of of getting signed and that was uh, Senator Ted Kennedy who spoke about his son who lost his leg and Senator Tom Harkin who talked about his brother who was deaf and Representative Tony Calejo of California who talked about growing up uh, with epilepsy and how it almost destroyed him. And so these were our uh, politicians that helped drive the legislation, the final, the final way, the final way home. And the final hearings for the Americans with Disability Act uh, brought forward just thousands of people and their testimony and thousands of letters that people where people told their stories and so um um and what, this this brought the uh, the act to its it, its final hearing uh and under uh, president george herbert walker bush um given the full name <laughs> full name and the full credit to uh, on July uh, 26, 1990, um, signed the Americans with Disabilities um, into into law. And I was fortunate uh, to be among the 3,000 people there on the South Lawn of the Capitol that day. I mean, of the White House when uh, when President Bush um, uh, signed the law and. Uh, it was after a long, hard-fought battle, but you know, it it was. Um, we knew that even then, we were we were happy. We were jubilant. You know, we we came from all over the country there on the on the lawn that day, and and we partied. I mean, like nobody's business, um, but. We knew that the fight was really just starting because now it was just in law. What was the ADA like? What did it What did it say? In a it, short it said time? that um, there are there are many uh, facets of that law, but there's the the public provisions where uh, public entities had to become accessible which meant they had to have ways into buildings. Mm. They had to have ramps or, or, or elevators or some way for, for us to get in. And yeah. there had to be curb cuts. So we're thinking this is just the law establishing that to take place. Yeah. Always when there's a law, there's a, a time period that people have to comply. It was sort of like, oh, where are we going to get the money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know who's going to give us the money? So How long was the time frame? It, it, the time frame, uh, what we you know had to be uh, a few years, yeah. uh, but it, there were various time frames for various aspects of it to come in place. Meantime, we had to we had to maintain our vigilance mm. uh, to make sure that uh, that um, that it this. Happened. Yeah, and just because it's a law doesn't mean it happens, right? 
Right, right. It doesn't, it doesn't mean it. And it does certainly doesn't mean it happens overnight. And so it's like, there's two parts, right? First, you have to say, yes, we are a class of people who are being discriminated against. And we actually have value and worth. And we are full humans as well. And that gets acknowledged, but nothing changes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Then you have to get a law passed that says, yeah, we already affirmed we're full humans and should have all these rights. So now this law needs to be put in place to make things happen because even acknowledging this wasn't enough. Right. Um, mm, That's pretty sad and frustrating. It is. And, and of course, um, you know, we go through, um, various administrations and each administration has its challenges but there's always uh, there's always the uh, uh, the attempt to deregulate and so of course coming along uh, you know years after um, the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, there were there there were attempts to deregulate and and undo some of those provisions that had been in place. So make some of them make it up to the people, uh, owners of the corporations or businesses and stuff and not required by the law. Say that again. Meaning um, it would be up to the businesses and places to do it, but it wouldn't be required by the law. That's what you're saying. Just make, take those changes uh, away and and you know during that time of course employers were facing um, uh, lengthy and costly uh, lawsuits for discrimination uh, hiring practices mm. about not hiring people with disabilities so they were all too eager uh, to, uh, to 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 deregulate so there's always this uh, uh, vigilance on the behalf of of people with disabilities we're always having it's sort of the one step forward two back you've got to be careful that what you achieved 19 on the day of 19 july 26 1990 isn't taken away from you in you know in another year so there's a constant vigilance Mm. a constant uh, uh, watch over and, and a constant advocacy uh, for systems change to 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 continue. Yeah. So you get this passed, and you're like, all right, we celebrate, yay! But now we still have to wait for the changes to happen. And not only do we have to wait for the changes to happen, we have to make sure things don't go back to the way they were. Right. Exactly. Um, because deregulation would be fine if people were viewing everyone as fully human and willing to do that on their own. Right. Um, and the law becomes necessary because people aren't and we need time. I would hope time. That's my prayer. Hope that in time, everyone would come to that point where it would just become, but I'm hopeful. <laughs> I'm a hopeful person. Hopefully we can, uh, uh, reach that utopic, uh, uh, point Joel at some time uh, along the path. So wh- how do you, it just sounds exa- like I'm exhausted thinking about it, right? <laughs> like, oh, it's done, but it's not done. Oh, it, it's going backwards, but we can't let it go backwards. Um, so in the midst of all this, trying to create this change, um, how do you maintain the energy and the hope and the drive? 
Well, I, I guess it, it goes for myself, and I can only speak for myself, but it, it's that survivor instinct just, just, just comes right back into into play and uh, it's a never it's a never give up i would never i will never give up oh and that that's really interesting um and it makes me wonder if you've had to fight your whole life right that now yeah this is just how i've always lived this i've always done it and i'll keep doing it you know you sort of you know after a while it's sort of it's sort of like now like going to a restaurant you, you think uh, it's 2020 do i really need to call that restaurant and make sure it doesn't have any steps or um you know it's 2020 i'm thinking oh every restaurant i can get into but even now um i'm always i always i'm, I'm, I'm always disappointed sometimes when i get there and i think Oh, I didn't do my due diligence. I didn't call them. These people, mm. I can't get in. I can't get in the door. Wow. Um, so it's um, um, it's just always in the back of your mind. Well, I I think I still need to make that call because yep. they they may not be enlightened yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way. That's a good way to put it, and maybe even a healthy way of putting it like we're this is a movement to enlighten people, to help people see. I, th I think it is. I, I think there's a lot to uh, enlightenment. It's, it's, uh, I, I believe you're right. I think that's a good word for it. Because I do think sometimes the word battle sounds, uh, can be taken negative, right? Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and appropriately so sometimes, but it sounds like what you experienced was very much so a battle and other words sweeter words kinder words would not <laughs> capture yeah. all you had to go through uh, up till now yeah wow but i've been fortunate you know i i, I consider uh, my journey uh through all of that um because I, again starting out in that going back in that small town i i was able to get an education i was able to get a job and I feel like uh, that my, I, I had good fortunes that many of my friends um, did not, did not have until much later on and their fight was much greater. And I'm, 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 I'm happy that with, with my life. Mm. Yeah. So you can even be grateful even in the midst of all the yes. struggle. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. That's beautiful. So what have you learned about, um, I don't know, changing systems and what advice would you give to people who are looking at our country or looking at local government or looking at our world and saying something's broken, um, something needs to be fixed, people aren't being viewed as whole humans, they're not being valued, I want to work on changing that. Um, what, what insights have you gleaned that would be helpful? Well, number one, it takes time. Um, number two, um, I think it's it's uh, it's good to point out why the change is beneficial for both parties involved. So, in other words, um, you know, if I wanted to get in that restaurant, I I wouldn't want to point out to the to the owner how much it might cost him to do that, but I might want to point out that if he did it. 
not only would I come back there, but I would tell all of my friends to come back there and to have parties there and they would tell their friends. And so it would be a benefit to so many people and he would benefit uh, financially by letting us all in. And so I think pointing out um, why it's a good thing, why it's the right thing to do and that everybody benefits is a much better way to go about it than, um, than the uh, pugilistic uh, uh, way of, of, of having a fight. If you don't do this, it, it's against the law, I'm going to report you, you're not as likely to get as far. Yeah, uh, right. so why do you have, you don't have to always be against, right? Right. You, you can see both sides and the value and the goodness of it. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think that, you know, the key is for the people who are impacted to be the ones to bring about the change. It has to bubble up from the people not, not doing it for someone, but having, you have to own the change that you want. Yeah. And owning the change means being a part of making the change happen. Right. Which goes back to the motto, right? Yes. Nothing, Nothing about us without us. Nothing about us without us. Yeah which I think so many groups who fall into that section 504, is that what it's called? And yeah. this discrimination group, right? Same, same thing. You yeah. Know, don't do this for us because we're the ones who are leading this and we're the ones who know what we need. And yes. Uh -huh. Ask us and yeah. we'll tell you because I can go into a place in any day of the week and I can tell if a person with a disability was involved in making the change or not, because, mm. you know, otherwise the, 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 the way they're doing something will, will have that that little awkwardness about it that wouldn't be there if, if we were involved. Yeah. So if there's somebody out there who's looking to make some changes because they see something, uh, and you're not a part of the group that is struggling with that. You're saying, make sure they're a part of this conversation or part of this work and it's driven they, by them. They must, must, that's a must. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So in it for the long haul that look for the benefit on both sides, um, highlight that what other tips or, um, takeaways from life so far have you um celebrate the small things mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah what like what what were some of the small things you celebrated mm. um well i i, I have to I have to celebrate that that my I have to celebrate that my family um, trusted me to to be independent and live on my own, mm. um, um, despite their fears and their um, their attempts to their 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 they want their want to hold me back, but but that they didn't. Yeah. And, I, th I think that's what, uh, you know, that, that, that sort of push forward, um, that, that go ahead, we'll, we'll let you do it. Um, 
uh, was, um, you know, the biggest, uh, the biggest thing I can celebrate in my whole life because it's the way I have operated my whole life is okay. I'll go, I'll go forward with this. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like celebration uh, may even be synonymous with gratitude in that yeah. sense, right? Noticing yeah. what you're grateful for and how you, where you have been blessed. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And so, the, I don't know. I mean, I, we see a lot of protests these days, um, whether it be the Poor People's Campaign, whether it be Black Lives Matters. Um, I'm, like, this isn't uh, – protesting is, I think, very clearly an important method for changing systems. Uh, we don't just see it in our country. We see it around the world, um, and especially nonviolent protesting. Mm -hmm. um, there's – Nonviolent protests have succeeded all around the world, uh, massive amounts, statistically more than violent protests. Um, and it sounds like this was one of those movements, a nonviolent movement for the most part. Well, I think for the, I think for the most part. I mean, uh, there was, uh, and they were actually, you know, there were civil disobedience. Uh, I think, you know, the fact that, uh, when, when many of them chained themselves to, to buses so that the buses couldn't move and they, and they actually were uh, arrested. Uh, but, um, it, you know, there was no, uh, there was, there were no um, um, acts of violence. Mm -hmm. uh, they were just, you know, a very strong demonstration of, uh, and, and willingness to say, you know, this is, uh, to show the, the the message of strength of saying you know I can't get on this bus and I'm going to chain myself here until I until you say that you're going to help uh, make a way for me to get on the bus. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's wild. And wild to think it wasn't that long ago, and that all these things have come in succession. Exactly, not that long ago. I mean, you know, not the dark ages. Uh, I mean, these were, these are mod these are modern times. Yeah. Uh, think about it, you know? Yeah. And not, not something taught in your grade school history class either. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Something missed. Um, so I think we missed how often this work has to be done and how often it has been done over our short United States history even. Yes. Um, Wow. Well, thanks for sharing your story. Um, like you said, thanks. Stories are the the movers and yes. what shape us. And um, to hear your story and the story of this whole movement that's still going on, yes, I think has power to it, uh, even for our times and what people are still feeling compelled to pay attention to and work for change. Yeah. Well, thank you, Joel, for um, letting me tell my story, and I hope that it may help someone else to. Uh, to make a change for the better of others.